0: Our scripture readings today um, are found in Matthew 2, verses 13 to 15, and Hosea 11, 1 to 11, 1st um, Matthew, which is on page 808. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the children and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. And in Hosea, which is page 757. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love, And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, He shall not raise them up at all. Oh, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Sebuin? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. And I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt, and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord.
1: Well, good morning. Happy third Sunday of Advent. We are continuing in our Advent series Spoken by the prophets, uh, we've been looking at Matthew's gospel as a sort of guide. You may recall if you've been here the last couple of weeks that uh, we've observed how Matthew, in his uh, account of Jesus' birth, he highlights five different Old Testament prophecies that he connects from the Old Testament to Jesus' birth. And so, with the four Sundays of Advent and then Christmas Eve, we're looking at these five prophecies that Matthew highlights. And this morning, uh, we are looking at the uh, passage from Matthew chapter 2, 13 through 15, and in particular, uh, the connection that Matthew makes there with Hosea chapter 11. Jesus, uh, after he was born, we saw this last week, Herod uh, had it out for him. King Herod saw Jesus as a threat, tried to find him and was looking to kill him. And so Joseph was warned in a dream by the Lord to take Jesus down into the land of Egypt out of Herod's reach. And the Lord said, stay down there until I tell you that it's safe to come back. And then after Herod uh, had died, then uh, Jesus was brought out of Egypt back into the land of Israel. And Matthew quotes Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, out of Egypt I have called my son. All of Hosea 11 emphasizes the fatherly love of God and most especially the fatherly love of God that comes to our rescue when we find ourselves in difficult circumstances or in the land of captivity far from home. We're going to see as we read through Hosea 11 in its original context that the Israelites were literally far from home. They were either in exile or they were on their way to exile. They were also, perhaps more importantly, and for our purposes, they were metaphorically far from home. Many of you know what that's like, to be metaphorically far from home, adrift, unknown, uncared for, no place that you really feel like you belong, no sense of purpose, no place where you feel safe, where you can let your guard down. Maybe that's how you feel this morning. Maybe as you think about your life, you just don't feel settled. You don't feel like you're home. Today's text is a reminder that God is our Father and that He loves us and that He will bring us to our true home, even in spite of ourselves. If you're a Christian this morning, I've been praying for you as I was putting together this sermon this past week, praying that you would be reminded on this third Sunday of Advent, how much your Heavenly Father loves you and how committed, deeply committed He is to bringing you to Himself and home. If you're not a Christian this morning, I've been praying uh, for you too, that you would come to find your true home in the eternal love of your Heavenly Father. All right. So let's jump into our passage here in Hosea 11. I'm going to give you the three main points of application that I see uh, in this text. And then having them, you won't need to listen to the remainder of the sermon. So no, that's not true. All right. So um, first point will be embrace God's fatherly love. Second point of application, reject childish presumption. And third point, trust in God's loving restoration. So embrace reject, and then trust. We're going to explore each of these points, and then we're going to pivot to the, uh, the communion table and our celebration of communion together, and we're going to connect what Hosea is saying in chapter 11 with what Matthew is saying in chapter 2 and see how these come together and have relevance uh, for our lives. All right. So hopefully you still got uh, Hosea 11 uh, open. Let me give just a little bit of context about what's going on in Hosea 11. Uh, Many of you probably no doubt are not overly familiar with Hosea. No judgment here. I don't think uh, less of you. Uh, It's a big book, the Bible. And uh, even I, who have read the Bible numerous times, had to go back and reorient uh, myself to Hosea. Hosea is a prophecy, or Hosea is a prophet, and he gives a prophecy spanning a number of uh, kings, the reign of a number of kings, but uh, King Hezekiah, the last of the kings during which he prophesies, is a king during the days of the Assyrian threat. So if you were here in the first uh, Sunday of Advent, we talked about the prophecy from Isaiah, and Isaiah was also a prophesying during the Assyrian threat. And Israel has been in consistent rebellion against God for many, many years. So finally, they've crossed the tipping point, they've, they've gone a step too far, and God is bringing the Assyrian empire down into the land of Israel to bring judgment upon the Israelites and to take them into exile and captivity. So the first 10 chapters of Hosea are fairly doom and gloom. I mean, if you thumb back through your Bible, you can see that at the top of every chapter, the editors of the Bible have given uh, chapter headings to give you a sense of what's in that chapter. So like chapter four, the Lord accuses Israel. Chapter five, punishment concerning our coming for Israel and Judah. Chapter six, Israel and Judah are unrepentant. Chapter 8, Israel will reap the whirlwind. Chapter 9, the Lord will punish Israel. And on and on it goes. So if you're ever looking for a pick-me-up, just stay away from chapters 4 through 10 of Hosea. Because it's God's indictment and his judgment against Israel for their sin. But then we get to chapter 11. And in the midst of God's uh, critique and his rebuke of Israel, he comes in chapter 11 with a reminder of his fatherly love. And so I want us to think about what it would look like for us to embrace God's fatherly love, chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. The first four verses of Hosea 11 remind us that God has loved Israel from the beginning with the same kind of love that a father has for his child. So look at verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. What's he referring to here? was referring to the, the great moment in Israel's history when Israel became a nation for the very first time. They had been a people, and God had chosen them as his people, and God knew them, but they really didn't know who God was. And they were in the land of Egypt. They were in captivity. Things were going poorly for them, and God came to them, and he made them his own. He adopted them. Here we have this text. We can find it in other places. He adopted them as his child. And he led them out of captivity in Egypt as a father leads a son. And so here we have this reminder of God's tender love towards the nation of Israel. We have uh, him referring to them uh, as his son. And then in verse 3, I taught Ephraim to walk. Not many of us, probably most of us, don't remember learning to walk, right? But if you're a parent, you remember teaching your child to walk. All right, and it, you know, holding their hands as they take their first steps, kind of keeping them away from the coffee table that you've placed all the little, you know, things around the corner so they can't whack themselves. Parents were so overprotective, right, with our kids, right? When they're learning to walk. And God takes Israel by the hand when they're still an infant and He teaches them to walk. Verse 4, the Lord says, I led them with cords of kindness and bands of love. I lightened their burden and I fed them. God literally fed them in the wilderness as he brought them out of the land of Egypt with the manna, the gift from heaven, and then, of course, some miraculous provision of food in terms of quail. And so God is caring for Israel from the very beginning tenderly as a father would care for his children. There's a lot of tenderness in these First to four verses, a reminder of God's fatherly love and care for Israel. There are many relational categories throughout the Bible that describe God's relationship with his people. Creator to creature, we see that, king to subject, lord to servant, shepherd to sheep, husband to bride. We see all of these throughout the scripture. And I think there's many different categories, relational categories that are used because not any single one category can exhaust the depth of our relationship with God. But there's a one relational category that makes a regular appearance in the Old Testament, but then grows and becomes the dominant relational category in the New Testament, and that's that of a father to a child. And that's the concept that the Lord is using here in Hosea 11 as he speaks and calls out to the nation of Israel. And the Lord is using it here, not in the midst of Israel's tender innocence and need, which is easy to imagine kind of the fatherly tenderness that that we would extend perhaps to a, a newborn or a toddler, right, who's so needy and dependent upon us. But here, the Lord has that same posture towards Israel as Israel has matured into a rebellious teen, as it were. Israel now is in rebellion against God as his father, and they've rejected God, and yet God comes to them with this tender word of his love for them. Some of you, because of your own experience, are comforted by the thought that God is your heavenly father. Others of you, because of your experience, not so much. The Bible has the same sort of variety as it comes to describing fathers. Some of the fathers that we encounter in the pages of Scripture are admirable and noble, and many of the fathers, though, that we encounter in the pages of Scripture are are not as much. You can think of probably maybe the worst fathers that we can find in the Scriptures would be King Manasseh. King Manasseh was the was the um, the king over Jerusalem, and, and uh, he was wicked through and through, and so bad, in fact, that uh, he would sacrifice his children to the pagan god Moloch. So, kids, as bad as you think uh, your dad is, <laughs> you're like, oh, my dad won't give me another Xbox, my dad won't buy me an iPhone, my dad won't let me stay out till 1 a.m. 1 a. But your dad is not sacrificing you in the fire to Moloch. So, you know, <laughs> that's. It's good. But if you ever want to, like, get back at your dad, you can be like, Dad, you're you're like a King Manasseh. You can just say that, you know, because he's not giving you what you want. All right. But while the Bible does not idealize the fathers that we encounter in the pages of Scripture, the Bible does idealize the concept of fatherhood, what a father should be. And indeed, I would say that most nearly all of us can grasp the ideal concept concept of a father, what a father should be. We recognize it when we see it, even if we didn't experience it relationally in our own lives. Lean into that ideal picture of a father for a moment. Think about what that ideal father is. He's strong, but loves tenderly. He's compassionate, but not a pushover. He's in control, but he's not controlling. He doesn't just call you to greatness, he takes you by the hand and he leads you into it. He's big enough to handle your anger and rebellion and respectable enough not to merit it. He works hard to make sure you are blessed, but he doesn't bless you so much that you become lazy. He knows when to push you, when to pull you, and when to leave you alone. He's confident without being proud, He's quick to your defense, quick to forgive, quick to be generous. He's constant, wise, humble. He's not afraid to lead. He's not too proud to follow. He's respected by his peers. And the ideal father, the ideal father, he's never wrong, but he never gloats. God is like that and and then beyond. He's like that and more. He's everything that a father should be. In fact, we have the ideal concept of a father because God is the embodiment of the ideal concept of a father. Even if you don't know God as your father and you know the ideal, you do know what God is like because the ideal comes from him. He is the one who instantiates and makes the ideal. If your experience of earthly fatherhood helps you on your way to the ideal fatherhood of God, then well and good. But if not, then lay aside your your misshapen pictures of fatherhood that haunt your mind and instead be drawn to the ideal itself that is embodied by God. So take a moment this morning here and reflect about where in your life, what situation in your life you need to embrace the perfect fatherhood of God. Are you anxious about your safety? Uncertain about your finances, your job, your health? Are you perhaps ashamed of your mistakes or of your own weaknesses and shortcomings? Is your life plagued by doubt And insecurity. What would it mean in those areas of your life, those difficult, hard spaces of your life, what would it mean to rest completely and fully and confidently in the strong arms of a perfect, loving Father? What would it look like in those areas of your life to embrace the fatherly love of God, God loves his children, not just a little. He is active and working to care for you. He takes you by the hand, and he tenderly, with his own hand, patiently teaches you to walk. He wraps his bands of kindness and his cords of love around you, and he leads you into blessing and life. He calls us to be at peace in that love. To rest in that love, to embrace that love. But alas, so often we don't, and neither did Israel. Which leads us to our second point of application. Reject childish presumption. This is what got Israel in trouble. Look at verses 5 through 7. As I've already mentioned, Israel at this point in their history has sinned is turned away from God, and judgment is coming upon them in the form of the Assyrians. So we got by verses 5 and 6. The Lord says, they shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities and consume the bars of their gates. So they had lived in Egypt in captivity. And now Hosea is saying, saying what the Lord is saying, is that they're not going back to Egypt for captivity. They're going to Assyria for captivity. Assyria, in many respects, is the new Egypt. It's the new place of captivity. Their whole story with God had begun 700 or more years ago when God had delivered them out of captivity in the land of Egypt and made made them his own. But now, because of their persistent rebellion and sin and their rejection of God, God is sending them back into into captivity, this time in Assyria. They're being cast out of their homeland. The sword will rage, the Lord says, and the gates of Jerusalem will be destroyed, and they will be sent into exile in a foreign land. But I want to focus our attention here on how verse 6 articulates the source, kind of the, the cause of Israel's rebellion. Look what it says there in verse 6. They are being destroyed. The sword is coming against their city. They're consuming the bars of their gates and devouring them because, look what it says, because of their own counsels. Because of their own counsel. God said, go left, and they thought, no, it's better to go right. God said, go up, and they said, no, it's better to go down. They presumed that they knew better than God. And here I would say is the fountainhead of all sin, is the root of all of our problems in our relationship with God. And isn't this the folly of little children? Is we think that we know better than our parents. We think, as little children, that we've got a better grasp of reality and a better sense of what the moment calls for than our parents do. So even though our parents say to us, don't eat the entire plate of Christmas cookies because you'll be sick, we're like, no, you know, I know what will make me happy, and eating the entire plate of Christmas cookies will make me happy. And then we find out that it actually doesn't make us happy in the long run, because as our parents said, we really do become sick. We think we know better than God, and so we follow our own counsel. The mistakes that little kids make in relation to their parents is the same mistake that we as adults make in relation to God. We lose sight of the perfect fatherhood of God and we start fending for ourselves, and we presume that we know better about what will lead us to joy and to our own blessing, and so we follow our own counsel. And then, like the Israelites here in Hosea 11, the more we're called, the more we go astray. Listen, as your pastor, let me just speak plainly and say, we do not know better than God. I don't know better than God. You don't know better than God. Our culture doesn't know better than God. The experts of our world do not know better than God. I freely acknowledge that it can be difficult at times to figure out how God's word should be applied or worked out in complex situations, so I don't want to simplify things that are complex, but there are many times when we know exactly what God wants of us. It's as clear as the sun in the sky on a cloudless day. We know what God wants of us, and we just flat-out refuse because we think that we know better. Like the Israelites, we follow our own counsel to our own ruin. The word of faith says this, God, my perfectly heavenly Father, is all-wise and all-knowing. He loves me. He knows better than me about what will bring blessing into my life. And if we truly believe that, if we truly embrace that, if we have true faith in that moment, then we follow through in what God has called us to do, and we follow through in obedience. But if we presume that we know better than our Father, we follow our own counsel, and we do what we think is best, even if it's contrary to what God has instructed. So where in your life this morning, or in this season, where are you following your own counsel over God's? Maybe you haven't quite thought of it like that. I encourage you to think of it like that. Where do you think that you know better than God? Where do you consciously or unconsciously think that you, in your own counsel, are more likely to lead to the path of blessing than following God's counsel? Or maybe, more subtly, where are you following God's counsel only because it happens to be your counsel, too? And isn't that how often it goes? We're not really following God's counsel. We're following our own counsel. It just happens to run parallel with God's counsel. We're not deferring to God, just following our own counsel and how very convenient that is. Perhaps you think you know better than God with respect to your relationships or your work or your finances or your family or your ethical vision for what the world should be. And you've been doing your own thing in those areas of life. But where's faith in that? Because doesn't faith require us to acknowledge that we're here and God is here and that he knows better than us? Faith is faith precisely because we would be inclined in our own wisdom to go this way. And God says, no, that makes sense to you. There is a way that seems right to a man, but that's the way to death. This is the way you should go. And faith says, I'm going to trust God's judgment over my own judgment. But when we reject the path of faith and we follow our own counsel, we follow our own counsel to our ruin. We don't just need to cease and desist from our wrong actions, however true that is. But even more foundationally, we need to repent of the presumption that we know better than God about what will lead to blessing. God is the perfect heavenly father, the creator of all things, the eternally wise, the eternally good, the eternally generous and eternally loving father who desires our best. Why would we presume to know better than him? But alas, so often we do, and so did Israel, which leads to our third point of application. When we've failed to embrace the fatherly love of God, when we have followed our own counsel and we find ourselves in ruin, then this third point of application applies to us, to trust in God's loving restoration. Verses 8 through 11. What's to become of us when we proudly go our own way and dig ourselves into holes that we cannot climb out of? Isn't that so often how sin works in our lives? We create problems for ourselves because of our sin that we cannot extract ourselves from. Is there any hope left for us in those situations? That's the situation that Israel now finds themselves in. They had persisted in their presumption. They had followed their own counsel all the way to their own ruin. They had locked themselves in a room and then thrown the key out the window, and they could not get out. how sin works in our lives. But God, their loving Heavenly Father, did not just wipe his hands and walk away. Look at verses 8 through 11. What God says to Israel in the midst of their rebellion. He says, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? Maybe you don't know Adma and Zeboim. I, too, did not know Adma and Zeboim until I looked it up here. But Sodom and Gomorrah, you may know, the cities that God destroyed had two sister cities. Adma and Zeboim. And so Adma and Zeboim were desolate, destroyed places that had received God's judgment, like Sodom and Gomorrah. And God is saying, how can I treat you like that? How can I make you desolate like that? My heart recoils within me, God says. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath and he says this they shall go after the lord he will roar like a lion when he roars his children shall come trembling from the west they shall come trembling like birds from egypt and like doves from the land of assyria and i will return them to their home declares the lord so the lord is saying i i i can't I can't bring myself to destroy you you're my child i love you so i'm going to i'm going to remember all the love that I have for you and I am going to roar in such a way that I will release you from captivity and I will bring you home and you will come back and you will be restored and delivered. Perhaps like the Israelites, you too this morning are in captivity far from home. Your circumstances, your situation, perhaps some sin, you're captive to it. You're in that hole so deep you can't get back out of it. And perhaps like the Israelites, your wounds and your circumstance, your difficulties are self-wrought. You've brought ruin upon yourself through your presumption that you know better than God. you think, what hope is there for me? Well, don't despair. The love of God pursues you even in the midst of, of your punishment. The Lord did not relent of the disaster that he was bringing upon Israel, but he preserved Israel in the midst of it. He continued to love them. And he brought them out of the land of captivity. Don't think that you have outrun the love of God. Do not think that you have sinned too grievously. Do not think that you are beyond the reach of his rescue, no matter how difficult the circumstance in which you find yourself. Do not think that he has forgotten you in the midst of your chastisement. Perhaps you think this morning, I've used up all of my chances. Do you know how many chances God gives? What's the number of chances that God gives? The answer is one more. (laughs) One more than you've already had. He always gives one more chance. For as long as today is called today, He gives another chance. Turn aside from your presumption and whatever sin led to your captivity and call out to God for deliverance. His compassion is warm and tender towards his children when they call for help. Or maybe you find yourself today in a circumstance, a situation that is not of your own making. Perhaps it's the making of someone else. Perhaps you're in a difficulty similar to the righteous prophets Jeremiah and Daniel, who were righteous in the land of Israel during the judgments that came in from Assyria and then later from Babylon, and though they themselves were righteous, they were swept into the judgment of the nation and dragged away into captivity and into exile. But they continued to look to the Lord. Trust God in the midst of your difficulty. You too call out to God and place your hope in his ability and his willingness to deliver. He has not forgotten you. It wasn't some oversight that you were swept into the trial that you are in. You've not slipped through the, cl- the cracks. He has plans for you in the midst of the trials and difficulties that you are experiencing. Which leads us then to the table this morning. God has not forgotten us, He's not left us bereft in our circumstances in the darkness of our sin. But he has come to us in Christ and has delivered us. Well, here we are at the table. We still need to come back to Matthew chapter 2. You might recall from the first Sunday of Advent, we talked about the way that the Old Testament prophecies often work that point to Christ. Some of them are direct prophecies, speaking specifically about the Christ who will one day come. Others are more foreshadowings. They're hints, as it were. They're pictures of what Christ will be. And I think this is one of those passages as well. Matthew sees Jesus being delivered from the land of Egypt. And he sees in it a picture, the picture that has already been painted in God's deliverance of Israel from the land of Egypt. And he says that Jesus' deliverance from the land of Egypt fulfills, it is the, the truest and purest fulfillment of God taking his son out of the land of Egypt. Of course, we are children of God only because Jesus is the true eternal child of God. We are children of God by adoption, but Jesus is the child of God by right, by eternal and natural descent. I think as we look at Matthew chapter 2 and try to figure out the way that that connects to Hosea 1, scholars have all sorts of different ways of trying to figure out the connection there. I would just say, I think one of the ways that uh, is plain that I think most would agree on is that God has delivered Jesus, his son, out of the land of Egypt so that Jesus could deliver us as his children, out of our own Egypt and our own captivity. And here we have before us the deliverance embodied. We come together to celebrate and participate in a fresh way in the deliverance that Jesus has brought to us and for us. At the cost of his own broken body and his own shed blood. He has brought us out of captivity, and he is ushering us into the kingdom of God. This meal, this, this appetizer, as it were, is a foretaste of the great supper that is to come in the final day when we are at last home, fully and finally, with Christ in the kingdom of God. If you're a believer this morning, you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, then this foreshadowing meal, this participation in this covenant promise, this is for you. And encourage you as you take it this morning to be reminded about the fatherly love of God that has tenderly loved you and has gone out of his way at great cost to himself to be sure that you'll be brought back home, even the cost of his own beloved son. And then, Revel and rejoice in that love that God has extended to you in Christ. If you're not a believer this morning, would ask that you would let the elements pass you by as they are distributed. This is a meal that is for those who have uh, placed their faith and trust in Jesus and are looking forward to his return. But I would encourage you in the quietness of this moment to reflect upon God's invitation extended to you that you too could become one of his children, that you too could be brought into the family of God, and all the promises that God has made to his child, to his children, could be made for you as well if you were to receive in faith the gift that God gives through his son, Jesus Christ.